This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Susanna, Emmeline, Caleb J., and Joanna. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb F., who asks, Were there any Pharisees in Jesus' time who didn't think they were perfect? Caleb, yes, there were. But before I give you examples, let me clarify just one thing. None of the Pharisees thought that they were literally perfect. And they were smart people. They knew better than that. What they thought was that you could keep the law without being literally perfect. In other words, that if you applied yourself, then you could be good enough to qualify as righteous. Honestly, that's what most people today believe, too. They just live by a different set of laws than the Pharisees did. The problem for people today, and for the Pharisees, was the same. That problem was that God's standard of righteousness is much higher than our own. So what looks good in our eyes is very different from what looks good in God's eyes. But having said that, yes, there were some Pharisees, in fact, a lot of them, who believed in Jesus when he appeared and trusted in him as the Messiah, as the one who had come to save his people. In John chapter 3, for example, we're introduced to one of them, a man named Nicodemus. In the book of Acts, we meet a guy named Gamaliel, who seems also to have been another one of these believing Pharisees. And, of course, there is one very famous Pharisee who trusted in Jesus, and that would be the Apostle Paul, who learned firsthand that salvation can only come through God's grace and not through works. And now Susanna wants to know, Do you think the Pharisees went to heaven? After all, they did what the law said and also what they said. Susanna, of course, some Pharisees did go to heaven because, as I said, some Pharisees trusted in the Messiah, in Jesus. So they were judged based on Christ's perfect righteousness and not their own works. But again, let me clarify something. When you say that the Pharisees kept the law, plus they kept extra laws of their own, that sounds like the Pharisees set a really high standard of obedience. Like They did what God commanded, and then they added on top of that extra things in addition. And that's certainly the way the Pharisees thought of themselves. As we've seen in Matthew's Gospel, the Pharisees often seem to believe not only that they're more righteous than everybody else, but that they're more righteous even than Jesus is. But in reality, the Pharisees didn't keep the whole law. That's the reason why, from John the Baptist to Jesus to Paul, the criticism of the Pharisees is always that they are hypocrites. The Pharisees were trusting in their own righteousness, and yet, That righteousness wasn't all that righteous, because they picked and chose what obedience they thought was important, and they substituted rules of their own in place of God's. 
And we have to remember this because sometimes we're tempted to think that the Pharisees had a hard way of salvation and that Jesus came to make salvation easier through grace. But the reality is the Pharisees didn't have a way of salvation at all. It was yet another way of condemnation because even perfect obedience would not have been enough to save the human race, and yet they were far from perfect in their obedience. That's why we should never trust in just being a good person to please God. There is no salvation except salvation in Jesus Christ. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Emmeline. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Emmeline's question. Why did Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Didn't he know God's plan already? Well, Emmeline, yes, Jesus did know God's plan. Throughout the Gospels, he gives plenty of evidence that he knows that his work of salvation will be accomplished through his death on the cross. We see him mentioning this before the cross, warning his disciples in advance, even though they don't understand the significance of his words, and when they do understand, they they deny it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we even see Jesus struggling with the reality of what he must do and ultimately submitting himself to the will of the Father, even though he knows how terrible death is. So when Jesus on the cross asks that question, why, why have you forsaken me? One thing we can be confident of is that he's not asking out of surprise it's not because he didn't see this coming and he's, he's taken unawares. Instead, something else is going on. To understand what's happening on the cross, consider a couple of other instances of what we might call divine questions. First, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve first sin in the garden, remember they hide themselves from God? And when he appears, he asks them why they've hidden themselves. Now, God doesn't need Adam and Eve to explain the reason. He knows the answer. He knows what's happened. But as one of my Worldview Academy colleagues, Mike Shutt, likes to point out, in this moment, we see God giving Adam and Eve a chance to answer for themselves. And the reason that he's doing this is because as human beings, they possess inherent dignity. They are made in God's image. And so he treats them, even when they sin, with respect. He affords them a privilege to speak for themselves that he doesn't give, for example, to the serpent. Think of another question. Think of the woman who was healed by touching Jesus' garment. Now, the account that we just studied in Matthew doesn't mention this, but elsewhere we learn that afterward, Jesus turns and asks, Who touched me? Now, it's not because he doesn't know. Instead, like the father with Adam and Eve, Jesus is giving the woman dignity to speak for herself, basically in this case, to confess her faith in him. Now, if we go back to the cross, we can say for certain that Jesus isn't surprised that the Father has forsaken him. 
Jesus knows about the terrible distance that sin creates between God and human beings. So his question isn't about knowledge, it's about experience. Jesus is experiencing that horrible alienation. He is enduring the pain of that unimaginable separation. If it was heart-wrenching for Adam and Eve to be cast out of the garden, cast out of their communion, their, their, their time in the presence of God, imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to bear all of our sin and to endure the consequences of that sin. Now, we take these consequences for granted, and that's why we're surprised by Jesus' reaction. Because of sin, we human beings have always been alienated from God. All the pain and meaninglessness and depression, all the dislocation, the hopelessness that we associate with the human condition, all of this stuff that we've gotten used to, that we take for granted, it's the result of sin. And it's only because we know nothing else that we don't cry out every day like Jesus, why have you forsaken me? But of course, in our case, it's the other way around. We forsook God in favor of sin. Now, like all of the words of Jesus on the cross, there's many layers here. There's plenty to meditate on. I can't explain them fully or exhaustively, but I can at least give you a place to begin. I think that in this moment on the cross, Jesus is experiencing the reality of sin and death, and by his example, he is teaching us how to see sin and death rightly. In the ancient world, the first critics of Christianity used this moment on the cross against Jesus, these very words. They said, if Jesus was so great, why did he face death with such dread and agony? They like to compare him to Socrates, who philosophized his way to the grave. Surely, they said, it's, it's a better way to die the way Socrates did than to die like Jesus. But in this, they were exactly wrong. They made the same mistake that so many of us make today in thinking that death is just a natural part of life, something to make peace with, something normal. The Greeks went further and told themselves that their souls were immortal and that all death did was free them of their corrupt bodies. But in fact, death is the highest expression of our alienation from God. God is life, and death is the opposite of life. That's why the wages of sin is death. Sin tears us away from God's presence, and death is absolute apartness from God. Jesus saw fully and perfectly what death really is and what it truly meant to take upon himself all of our sin, and he did it anyway. That is a testament to his love. And as we meditate on these words of his on the cross, they should lead us to marvel at how great his love must be. As long as we downplay the terrors of sin and death, we can never really appreciate the depth of his love. But once we get honest about them, we begin to see just how monumental the love of Jesus truly is. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Caleb J., who asks, 
Pastors are the most holy people, but the Bible says do not work on the Sabbath. So, why do pastors only work on the Sabbath? Well, Caleb, this is a great question, but uh, there are a couple of misconceptions that I want to clear up first. Uh, The first is that pastors are the most holy, and the second is that we only work on Sundays. Pastors, when they're called, are called for their gifts, not necessarily for their graces. In other words, pastors are often very gifted when it comes to preaching, teaching, and helping you apply scripture. But that doesn't mean that pastors are the best at living those things or that they are the holiest people. Now, this is important. You should never put pastors on too high a pedestal and never assume that a person's knowledge or skill is the same as actual holiness. The best pastors that I've known were very aware of their shortcomings, and I'm conscious of mine. Second, pastors actually work throughout the week like everyone else. In fact, a lot of the work of ministry happens outside the worship service. Everything from studying the Bible, preparing sermons and lessons, counseling people, prayer, even making podcasts like this one. And to be honest, I don't think of what I do in worship as work. It's worship for me just like it is for everybody else. And remember, too, the prohibition on working on the Sabbath does not apply to our duties toward God. The whole point of resting from your everyday labors is to devote yourself to God's service. So everything we do in worship, whether it feels like work or not, is not only allowed, but is actually required of us. And now Joanna asks, what are three of your favorite holiday traditions? Well, by far, my favorite tradition, Joanna, is getting presents for Christmas, because I like getting presents. Oh, and I like giving them too. But really, I like getting them the most. Now, for Easter, I really like the idea of getting all dressed up. There are theologians who say that getting dressed up like that is kind of like a foretaste of the glory of resurrection. And since we celebrate the resurrection in particular on Easter Sunday, I've always appreciated a nod towards that celebration. My last one is a little bit of inside baseball, because this is a holiday that most people don't celebrate, but here goes. In the town where I grew up, which was down on the Gulf Coast, we celebrated a famous historical event where pirates attacked the town and took the mayor hostage. So every year on Contraband Day, a flotilla of boats would descend on our downtown and some people dressed as pirates would seize the mayor and take him onto their ship. And then they'd have a big pirate parade through downtown and throw gold doubloons to kids like me in the crowd. Although, actually, they were plastic doubloons, but I still loved them. And for a while, I wanted to grow up and be a pirate. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.